Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from Let Your Kingdom Come, a book where we trace the idea of the kingdom of God all the way through Scripture and beyond. Well, we're ready to go beyond now. We're ready to talk about the things that people said after the apostles. This is the kingdom and the fathers. The apostles taught men who carried on the teaching to the next generation. I'm speaking of men like Justin Martyr and Papias and Irenaeus in the early centuries of the church. Much later, the Roman Catholic system tried to replace Israel with its own priesthood, its own rituals, its own jubilee, its own symbols, its own ceremonies, but the vision could not be kept suppressed forever. Replacement theology, a ruthless form of anti-Semitism, caused the leaven of amillennialism to rise and be the dominant millennial theory for centuries, even on into the Reformation and from the Reformers to our own day. But those who know Puritan names like Sibs and Owen, Henry, Mather, Boston, Gill, should not be surprised to hear from their pens affirmation of the promises of God to Israel. Premillennial thought is not some new doctrine that started in the 1800s. As I have shown, it is prophetic, apostolic, and post-apostolic. Indeed, the cloud of premillennial glory was for a while smothered by the likes of Origen and Augustine, but it remains a fire. It was never allowed to burn out completely. Today, it is still a major way of thinking for the Christian church as we rapidly approach the time of that kingdom when Christ returns. But before the fathers, before we move to the church fathers, there's two other glimpses into post-apostolic Judea. First, I want to look at the Zealots. It's A.D. 66, the kingdom and the Zealots. Wikipedia says the Zealots were a political movement in first-century Second Temple Judaism, which sought to incite the people of Judea province to rebel against the Roman Empire and expel it from the Holy Land by force of arms, most notably during the First Jewish-Roman War from 66 to 70. Now, what does that tell you about the expectation of the Jews? It says to me that one way or another, a kingdom was going to come to Israel. That's what they thought. Obviously, this Jesus had not made it happen. Well, we'll take things into our own hands. Israel wanted a kingdom, longed for it, waited for it. But some just went ahead and tried to make it happen. Perhaps these fighters had the Maccabees in mind. Both attempts failed to bring about the promise given to Abraham. And now, secondly, another word from the Apocrypha. We talked about the Apocrypha earlier. I, I enter Apocryphal writers here, as I did before the coming of Christ, not because of their authority, for they are not inspired writers. I simply am allowing to speak all those men who agree with the apostolic and prophetic writings regarding the coming kingdom. For example, Baruch's message quite possibly came out just after the last apostle John gave us the revelation. So we continue the journal of kingdom thinking through the ages. It's now A.D. 100, 
the kingdom, and Baruch. We all know the real Baruch from the prophecy of Jeremiah. Several apocryphal writings were based on this man's life, most written after Jerusalem fell, and the promises of God needed to be reaffirmed. Again, I do not present this work as from God, but as from a people trying to hang on to God's word and the covenant with Abraham. An entire chapter of this Baruch book is given to exhorting God's people to have faith in what is coming. Baruch chapter 5. Put off, O Jerusalem, the garment of mourning and affliction, and put on the comeliness of the glory that cometh from God forever. Cast about thee a double garment of the righteousness which cometh from God, and set a diadem on thine head of the glory of the everlasting. For God will show thy brightness unto every country under heaven. For thy name shall be called of God forever the peace of righteousness and the glory of God's worship. Arise, O Jerusalem, and stand on high, and look about toward the east, and behold thy children gathered from the west unto the east by the word of the Holy One, rejoicing in the remembrance of God. For they departed from thee on foot, and were led away of their enemies. But God bringeth them unto thee, exalted with glory, as children of the kingdom. For God hath appointed that every high hill and banks of long continuance should be cast down, and valleys filled up, to make even the ground that Israel may go safely in the glory of God, to make even the ground. Moreover, even the woods and every sweet-smelling tree shall overshadow Israel by the commandment of God. For God shall lead Israel with joy in the light of his glory, with the mercy and righteousness that cometh from him. Yes, the kingdom, the kingdom lived in the post-apostolic community. Let's go to 100 A.D., and, and that's a question mark date there. We're not totally sure, but the kingdom and Esdras. Esdras, first and second Esdras are a couple other of the apocryphal books found but not fully accepted in Jewish and Christian tradition. Esdras, who claims falsely to be the Ezra of biblical fame, wrote this book, some say, after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, or at least in some troubled time in Israel after Christ was here. In spite of the trouble, the author is sure about a coming kingdom and a promise to the fathers that must be kept. Second Esdras, chapter 3, 13 to 15. Now, when they lived so wickedly before thee, Thou didst choose thee a man from among them, whose name was Abraham. Him thou lovest, and unto him only thou showest thy will, and madest an everlasting covenant with him, promising him that thou wouldst never forsake his seed. Second Esdras 13, 32-38 And the time shall be when these things shall come to pass, and the signs shall happen which I showed thee before. And then shall my son be declared, whom thou sawest as a man ascending. And when all the people hear his voice, every man shall in their own land leave the battle they have one against another. 
and an innumerable multitude shall be gathered together, as thou sawest them, willing to come and to overcome him by fighting. Well, the author was certainly familiar with the book of Revelation, as these and the following words make plain. Again in Esdras, verse 35, But he shall stand upon the top of the Mount Zion, and Zion shall come, and shall be showed to all men, being prepared and builded, like as thou sawest the hill graven without hands. And this my son shall rebuke the wicked inventions of those nations, which for their wicked life are fallen into the tempest, and shall lay before them their evil thoughts, and the torments wherewith they shall begin to be tormented, which are like unto a flame. And he shall destroy them without labor by the law which is like unto me. End of quote. Well, obviously, the biblical Ezra was not given this revelation. I include the quote only to demonstrate how the sentiment of the kingdom was enduring after Jesus was here and into the age of the fathers. Now, a searching we will do through the leaders of the church down through these many years. But wait, somewhere along this trail we travel, misguided souls will steal the kingdom of Israel and give it to the church. In the spirit of see something, say something, it's my sad responsibility to inform my Christian peers that something sinister has been long perpetrated on a huge portion of scriptures, and no one seems to care. So how does one steal a full 1,000 years from the biblical story and get away with it? Well, one doesn't. But that hasn't kept many from trying to do so over the centuries. I've taken you on a tour of Bible history, and especially biblical prophecy, to point out to you how often the grand old book mentions a coming kingdom, its very length, its specific contents, now we take a short visit to church history. My heart is heavy as I proceed, for as in so many cases where biblical truth is under attack, the one who makes Christians aware of it is left crying out with Isaiah, Lord, who has or who will believe our report? I send this report out with the prayer that someone at least will believe it. A word about Scissors theology. I well remember the days I spent at Kentucky's Heritage Academy, sitting at the after-school homework desk, supervising little ones for an hour or so. And not too exciting a task. A lot of free time there. Somehow I had gotten hold internally of the kingdom message of the Bible. Even then, this was many years ago, I was especially enamored with Isaiah 2, two to four, and we did talk about it. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he will, uh, to, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We shall, we shall, we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. How wonderful that sounded then, and, and still sounds today. A high mountain in Jerusalem, a house of the Lord sitting up there, everyone in the world visiting it, visiting to learn the ways of the Lord. King Jesus putting the nations in order, no more war. I had been taught to take the Bible literally whenever possible. Why not here, I thought. I skimmed through the Bible and found tons of other passages that said the same and more. A real kingdom with King Jesus in charge. Details, promises, what was not to like. I found an old beat-up Bible and brought my scissors to work and started cutting out every passage I could find on this wonderful subject. I pasted all those pages into a notebook that soon bulged with information on this kingdom. Much later, I wrote a book about it called The Kingdom Handbook. It's still available at Amazon. But that's not the scissors theology that I'm talking about. That was an innocent heart magnifying the kingdom of God and enjoying every minute of it. I'm doing more of the same right now, nearly 40 years later. But there have been since the days of the church fathers, shortly after the apostles lived and died, a class of men who have taken their virtual scissors to their virtual Bibles and cut out these same passages, interpreted them any way they saw fit, and tried to paste them back into the book, hoping no one would notice or even care that much. And you know what? Most people didn't care. They said, and they say, as they do with the rapture question and others, I'm not worried about details, just give me Jesus now and I'm happy. Now, when's the next ball game on TV? It sounds good to try to avoid controversy, to be all-inclusive in one's beliefs, harmonic, unified. Jesus prayed for unity, right? But you see these same people tremendously concerned about their baseball scores recipes, homes, gardens. They'll give hours and hours to projects that involve this world, but they won't investigate the preachers and teachers who stand before them with whatever doctrine. As long as their sports life can continue, their home is secure and comfortable, their bellies are full, and so on. Well, the Lord wants us to love his word. Jesus said of the words he gave the disciples in Matthew 24, he said, let him that reads understand. A special blessing is also given to those who read and comprehend the book of Revelation. Why are we too busy to dig deeper? Scissors theology is not new, nor is it related only to the millennial kingdom teaching. Consider those, and I speak of Christians, who have trouble with Genesis 1 to 11. How many Christians believe the world was created in six 24-hour days? How many believe in a worldwide flood that killed all but one family? How many believe the story of the fall of man, a real Adam, a real Eve, the Tower of Babel story? More critical, there are those who have cut out the resurrection of Jesus along with all of his miracles, and reduced him to a nice man who said nice things most of the time. 
We should not then be surprised to see how kingdom passages, <clears throat> such as Revelation's final chapters, along with huge portions of the Old Testament prophecies, have been watered down, cut out, allegorized, and forgotten. I state again, my view of all this revisionism is that the underlying problem with those who eliminate and or rewrite and or reinterpret whole passages of Scripture is unbelief. And now, to be fair, it's difficult to believe that a man could rise from the dead. I give you that. Difficult to comprehend a God who would destroy nearly all his created beings. Difficult to see why there needs to be a transitional kingdom on earth before the new heavens and the new earth appear. I don't get it. Doesn't fit my way of thinking. Therefore, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Let me explain. That's the approach. Well, personally, I, I can't handle such treatment of God's word. I still believe the Bible is literally true in every place except where it says it's not literally true, as in the parables. Even the parables have a literal meaning behind them, and only one, to be sought by erstwhile students of the Word. In this document, I have visited millennial passages with the idea that they are actually true. Now, isn't that a novel way to approach the Bible? Actually true. Oh, my. I enjoy the challenge of taking a prophecy as far as it will go without changing a word and believing it all the way. Would that more of God's people would try this. Handling the word in this way will produce in our minds a risen Savior, an all-powerful Creator, a judge of all the earth, and a kingdom that responds to the prayer that many of us pray regularly when we ask your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Bob, uh, you were talking about the church fathers. Uh, yeah, yeah, j just one more thought or two. Wait a minute. Alva McLean, in his book, Greatness of the Kingdom, tells us that the idea of, and I'm quoting, a Christ who will reign with his risen and glorified saints over the nations in a literal kingdom for a thousand years was the almost universal belief of the early church and is now generally conceded by scholars who are able to read history with a minimum of theological prejudice. He quotes Archibald Robertson, who wrote a book called The Kingdom of God, as saying that this view prevailed, I quote again, in the church generally for two centuries and a half and in the Western Church for four centuries, until the time of Augustine. McLean adds that even Augustine held to this belief in his early career. The Scriptures and the Kingdom, bright as day, the Scriptures speak volumes about a coming Kingdom. John tells us exactly how that Kingdom fits into the chronology. How could this be made clearer, I wonder? What was it that brought this teaching down to be replaced by a no kingdom or kingdom now or eternal only or allegorized kingdom only doctrine? Did everyone after the apostles abandon the literal scriptures? We'll see. But to whom should we appeal when looking for foundational truths? 
I believe the apostles and prophets, when taken literally, can only be called pre-millennial. That is, they believed in a 1,000-year reign of Christ and his people on earth, following the return of Christ to that earth. Are there other teachers <coughs> that have more authority? Excuse me. <coughs> that are more trustworthy? That speak with one voice? No. The rest of the teaching on the millennium is garbled. Whether the church fathers that followed the apostles, the church father himself, Augustine, the Roman system that led into the dark ages, the reformers, or well-known teachers that have appeared since, they've all got their own take on the future kingdom, and there is not one of them to build upon. So I now will present the few who saw what the apostles saw. Now, I say now, but I don't mean now. I mean next time. I will present those few in the decades to follow, a couple of hundred years, that saw what the apostles saw. We'll start with Justin Martyr next time around. Thank you so much for hanging in there. I know this has been difficult, but we get into some very interesting things that maybe you haven't heard before, and I want you to hear. With all of my heart, I want you to hear. Well, I'm Bob. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.